0: Online at KFUO.org. And welcome to Concord Matters, the show where we seek to be of one mind, that is the mind of Christ. And to do that, a couple of Christ-confessing Concordians confer with the Book of Concord to conform what we believe, teach, and confess according to scripture and our Lutheran confession of the faith. On today's show, we will continue our discussion of the catechized life, picking up with the Third Commandment and then looking at the hinge between the two tables of the Ten Commandments and getting into the fourth commandment. I'm your host, Pastor Sean Smith, pastor of the Evangelical Lutheran Dual Parish of Emmanuel West Point in St. Paul's Wine Hill in Southern Illinois. And our catechist for this series is Pastor Mark Bestel. He is the pastor of Calvary Lutheran Church in Elgin, Illinois. Pastor Bestel, welcome back. And today, as we get into, as I said, the third commandment and then the hinge between the two tables, and we'll talk about the two tables and into the fourth commandment, We're continuing our way through the commandments here, and so let's just go ahead and get into the third commandment, which is, remember the Sabbath day by keeping it holy, and Martin Luther writes our explanation for that. What does this mean? We should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and His Word, but hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it. So, Pastor Bestel, go ahead and take us away here with the third commandment. A lot of ground to cover today.
1: Sure thing. Thanks, Sean. Let's first start with the definitions. Usually when people read this commandment, the very thing they focus on are those two words, Sabbath day. And both of those probably need to be defined a little bit. First of all, the word Sabbath, that's not one that we hear often in the English language, or at least it doesn't have a lot of use in the English language outside of its roots in you know Israel's history. And now today, of course, we hear it from folks who are uh, part of the Jewish religion. What did the word Sabbath mean? Well, Sabbath simply means rest. And yet that word does not mean rest like idleness or laziness. It means to rest in God. Of course, God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested. uh, And so there is a divine rest. Uh, Even part of the world's created origins, God builds into it sort of a divine rest on that seventh day. So we can always sort of frame our weeks based on this great reality that we work for six days because, after all, work is a godly thing from creation. It's a good, noble thing to do. And then on the seventh day, we rest. But we don't rest in idleness. We don't rest in laziness. And that's a really important point because it sort of takes us back to what we were talking about last week with the first commandment, that there are really two gods when it's all said and done. It's either Christ or it's the capital M, Me. And if we rest for the sake of idleness or laziness, we are really resting for the sake of capital M, me. And so we have to define this carefully to remind ourselves that when God sets up a Sabbath day, it's not a day just to say, okay, you've worked hard for six days, now just lay there and do nothing. But rather, it's a day in which he says, now I am going to care for you on the seventh day in divine spiritual ways. And I'm going to make sure that you are able to rest in me. Now, that brings us to the other word, the word day. And the word day becomes a problem because some people look at this very legalistically and say, wait a second, if the day in the Old Testament was the seventh day, and here we're meeting on Sundays, which is the eighth day, then how do we know that we're actually keeping this commandment? To ease everyone's conscience, I think, and and just to cut to the chase on this one, Jesus says in the New Testament, remember, he says that man was not made for the Sabbath, but Sabbath was made for man. And therefore, he applies it to himself in saying, since I'm Lord over everything, basically, he says, I am Lord also then even over the Sabbath. And so, in a sense, Jesus there sort of redefines our narrow version of reading the third commandment into a wider version of reading the third commandment that it's not just about the Sabbath day from the first creation, but now what about the idea of resting in God and his gift to us in the Messiah? And therefore, Christians for 2,000 years now have had that divine rest on that first day of the week, the eighth day of the week, that day of the new creation, that day which points to Christ's resurrection and therefore the the Sabbath rest that we find in him. In fact, I believe it's the book of Hebrews which even talks about the fact that so then a Sabbath rest remains, and it's pointing to Jesus. It's pointing to the activity of gathering around the altar of Jesus. So to gather on the Lord's day and call upon the name of Jesus is Sabbath rest, and that is now fully revealed in Christ Jesus and then we don't have to worry so much or we don't have to argue so much about the issue or the debate of what day. Everything points to Jesus. And that's how God establishes this idea of Sabbath rest, is I want to give you rest by the work of my Messiah, my Messiah pouring out all of those benefits to you, as we just heard on the day of Pentecost, right, that he pours out his Holy Spirit to us through word and sacraments. And this is divine rest. At the same time, Luther does, when he talks about the meaning of this uh, in the Large Catechism, he does spend quite a bit of time in that discussion talking about the idea of a day and the idea of a holiday. What makes for a holiday? And of course, that word holiday simply is the compound form of two words, holy day. So, what makes for a day being holy? And in short, Luther will say that everything is made holy by the Word of God, so that, again, we don't have to read the Third Commandment and specifically look at one day of the week. And yet, Luther does spend quite a bit of time discussing the importance of understanding the difference between what is a holy day for Christians versus what, you might say, the secularist or the person who rejoices in idleness and laziness or just personal rest for the sake of personal rest— uh, there does have to be a distinction in what a Christian sees as a holiday versus what the world sees as a holiday. And Luther spends a lot of time with that. He uh, talks about the fact that the holiday sense of the word, in the even in the old you know German secular culture or the new American culture, no Christian should consider any other day a holiday other than that which is made holy by the fact that it's grounded in God's word and it's immersed in God's word. And so we could ask ourselves, are American holidays really holidays in a good theological sense? Uh, One, Christians do well to focus on what truly makes for a holy day, the truth of God's word. That's what makes for a holy day. Luther says, in fact, he says, other things shall not be called a Christian's holy day, for indeed non-Christians can also stop working and be idle. If that's the whole point of a Sabbath rest— then sure, anybody can sort of just sit lazy under the shade of a tree and call it a holiday. But that's not the Christian's point or the Christian's focus. So that, you know, we've got American days coming up that we can ask ourselves, well, is this truly a holy day in the scriptural sense, in the third commandment sense? Independence Day, Arbor Day, Valentine's Day, you know, we're we're just on the other side of Memorial Day. And there's a good example where, as Christians, here we take a day as American citizens, and we rightly pause and remember very solemnly and revere and honor those who made uh, what we often call the ultimate sacrifice, right, the sacrifice of their own lives, that their descendants, could have a free country. And that's not a day for us as Christians in America to be thankless toward. Uh, It's not a day for us to say, oh, that day doesn't matter or that remembrance doesn't matter. Those Americans paid the ultimate price. And so we do uh, honor, you might use the word revere or uh, solemnly remember, whatever phrase you want to use. And yet, even that cannot make something holy And that's the beauty of this word holiday, is that if it's a holy thing, it must come from God. And even the greatest sacrifices Americans can make one for another still cannot make one holy in God's sight. And so even those days, Christians can say, as important as those days are for our nation, as proper as it is for us to spend time focusing on those days and taking those days as more than just an extra shopping day or more than just a third weekend day, those don't quite rise to the level of the amazing mystery of what God does for us on each holy day in which he serves us through his holy word and through his precious sacraments. So Luther does spend some time on this reality, and we do well as Christians to mark the fact that Yes, God even sets aside a day for us that we might take time out of the week not to get so wrapped up in the week, because as we said in last episode, we don't want to say God is sort of our first God and then my second God of mammon and my second God of paychecks those all rival everything. And so I'll work for them for six days. And then on the seventh day, I'll just be idle and rest so that I can go back to work for six more days. And pretty soon now, I'm just chasing after the little god of mammon, which serves the big god of capital M me. And so we want to be very careful about making that distinction. And yet it is proper for us to say, no, there is a day for Christians to simply dwell in the word of God, in the rest of God, And know that by it, he is working mysteriously, working divinely to care for us. And that's a mysterious beauty that we ought not trivialize by allowing other things to creep into that day. Little League cheerleading, the football game and the tailgating party the sleepover from Saturday night into Sunday morning. There are a lot of things out there that distract people from the fact that it's not so much that you're not honoring a day. It's that perhaps you're allowing it to prevent you from the opportunity to rest where God calls us together around his altar, around his pulpit, around his font, and says, come, and I will give you divine rest. And so we are right to safeguard a day, just as Luther talks about in the commandment there in his meaning in the large catechism. And I would also just in passing sort of make the comment that the church of all ages should really work together on upholding a day. Uh, You know, we, we should really be careful about just saying, well, as long as it's someday, then in Christian freedom, I'll use a Tuesday night or I'll use Thursday night or whatever. And the reason I say we should be careful about that isn't because we don't have Christian freedom to do so, but rather that this is something that God has set up for his church. Every congregation is not a congregation unto itself. We're part of the great church universal. The church universal has always seen since the day of Christ's resurrection, has always seen Sunday as that day of rest. And if we too flippantly begin to make changes on these things, then they become less important in people's eyes to the idea of saying, you know what, I can make this change because it's convenient in the rest of my schedule. And if it's convenient in the rest of my schedule, then pretty soon I am sort of even unintentionally I am actually worshiping the rest of my schedule. And now the things of God have become a convenience to me rather than becoming that which not only defines my week, but that which carries my week, that which strengthens and sustains me for the week ahead. I often sort of try to picture for my confirmants, for my kids, the idea that going from Sunday to Sunday, is almost like when you're playing tag or when you're playing kickball or softball or, or baseball or whatever, and you have to run from base to base. And the time in between the bases can be sort of dangerous. But when you're on the base, you know that you're safe. And in a in a way, not a perfect analogy, but in a way that's sort of like what Sunday is for the Christian. And people even comment about this without realizing it when they say, oh, I, I missed church and it just didn't feel right." It didn't feel right to miss out. Well, it's not just a matter of habit or tradition or custom, but the reality is is that we instinctively as Christians know, I'm missing out on something more than just the habit of going to church or just the tradition. Uh, One time, somebody wrote a great article on my apologies to whoever wrote it. I can't remember uh, what the name of the article was or who wrote it. But somebody wrote an article uh, in which they talked about the fact that sometimes people will come back to church after a few weeks and say, well, what did I miss? And of course, the answer is always the same. You missed the holy things of God. Right? It's not, well, you didn't miss anything because the church congregational meeting didn't make any decisions on whether we we're going to have blue carpet or red carpet or whatever. It's not an issue of missing anything temporally minded or earthly minded. But as the hymn says, let all mortal flesh keep silence and with fear and trembling stand, ponder nothing earthly minded. And it comes, you know, and it talks about God coming, Christ coming to earth, descending to earth, to the altar, to the pulpit, to the font and bringing his gifts That's what you miss if you miss out on that occasion in which God gathers his church together. As the scriptures even say, let us not forsake the gathering together of the faithful, as some are prone to do. Why? Not because the scriptures are worried about customs for customs' sake, or traditions or calendars for calendars' sake, but rather because our whole life is buoyed by and strengthened and sustained by that day that God has set apart for us to be served by him. Now, in closing uh, uh, on this opening idea, I suppose we could also go back to that earlier comment in which really it's not just about the day, but rather Christ is our Sabbath rest. And so everything, as Luther says in the large catechism, everything is made holy by the word of God. And that means when we study it in our homes, that's a holy thing. When we live our daily lives in the Word of God, that's a holy thing. And so we're not just trying to keep a day holy, but rather on that day, we are being strengthened and sustained and being reminded that we are to live a a life that is grounded in God's Word, because God's Word makes all things holy.
0: I really like how you've set this commandment up here for us and provided some excellent teaching I've always appreciated the summary that Luther does in his Ten Commandments hymn, which just beautifully reflects and summarizes everything that you just laid out there for us, I think. You shall observe the worship day, that peace may fill your home and pray, and put aside the work you do, so that God may work in you. Have mercy, Lord. I've just always liked the way that that's phrased. By the way, that's Lutheran service book, hymn 581, and in the TLH 287. It's a great hymn, and that's been one of my favorite lines in there, especially that put aside the work you do that God may work in you. That's a beautiful image for us. And you talked in there about holidays and how rightly, and you quoted Luther on this, we don't really have holidays in the secular sense. We tend to use that terminology in our culture, but they're not truly holy days. And in talking about that and everything being covered in God's word, do you want to say anything about the days that are outside of Sunday that we would call holidays or even just kind of the daily life of the Christian being sanctified by God's word according to this commandment as well?
1: Sure. I think that's an important point for us to reflect on, that there are specific days, first of all, and then there are generically every day, if you will, of life. In the specific days, think of the church calendar, and I've been encouraged to see that among sister congregations, there does seem to be a desire to renew people's focus on the church calendar a little bit. More and more congregations are thinking about maybe going back to Ascension services on Thursdays, or Epiphany services on January 6th, or other services during the week That mark specific days of the church calendar year, because they remind us of the holy events that bring to us God's favor, right? The ascension day, of course, that we just celebrated, Christ ascending into heaven, or Epiphany, that here the wise men come and bow before the Christ child. It's a reminder to us all that Christ came not just for the children of Israel, but for all nations. And so It's a wonderful thing to see, and I certainly would encourage all congregations out there and anybody who's listening who might be in a congregation where that perhaps hasn't been the habit in recent generations to say, you know, it is important for Christians not just to push those occasions into a Sunday service for the sake of convenience, but to say, this is something we should pause and reflect on. In daily life, even if it falls on a Thursday or even if Epiphany, you know, uh, uh, January 6th, even if it falls on the Monday after the second Sunday in Christmas, which, man, I tell you, you get through that Christmas season, everyone is understandably sort of fatigued and tired of all of the, quote unquote, holiday celebrations that start. You know, early in December in our secular calendar, everyone's celebrating Christmas a whole 24 days before Christmas even gets here, and they forget the Advent season, and then they're just totally tired by the time you get to January 6th. And if that January 6th falls on a Monday, man, it is difficult to work up the energy, if you will, to say, but there's still rest to be had in this good news that Christ came for the Gentiles as well. So I'd certainly encourage any listener out there who's in a congregation that doesn't yet have that to request the congregation, you know, don't demand it, but request that the congregation think about these things and think about the benefit of it, because we ought to uphold those days in the church calendar even more than we do the days in the American calendar as proper as it is as American citizens, to uphold those days, it's all the more fitting for us to uphold the non-Sunday festivals or holidays of the church calendar. But as you say, every day of life is made holy by Christ's Word, which means that all of our efforts in daily life are made holy. And this is another great point that perhaps even hinted at. Maybe, Maybe this isn't where you had wanted to take this, but it made me think of this as you were saying it, that You know, since the Sabbath day is for God working his work in us, as Luther's hymn, as you rightly quoted that, then by definition, the divine service can't primarily be about me trying to come and show God how much I love him to sort of get something from him. The divine service, by definition, cannot be our work for God if we are going to keep the Sabbath day holy. What makes the Sabbath day holy is not that we're working on it, but that Christ is working on that day to care for his people. And so it helps us properly define worship, not as being what I'm doing for God primarily, though there are certainly sacrificial acts of offerings and prayers and hymns of thanksgiving. Those are all sacrificial acts that man does, but those are always secondary to the primary sacramental acts that Christ is doing for his people, the preaching of the word, the giving of the sacraments, that's what makes that day holy. And as it makes it holy and as it strengthens us and encourages us for the week ahead, then what holy work is ours to do in the love of our neighbor? and in caring for our neighbor during the week. There is our holy work. There is, if you will, the sacrifices that we make for God uh, in living not for ourselves, not out of idolization of the capital M-me, but living with faith in him and fervent love for one another. And as he is so cared for us on that Sabbath rest, then it makes holy and it strengthens us to do that which is holy in terms of our love toward our neighbor during the week.
0: Yeah, I think as you were talking there, I found myself thinking about this is possibly a connection already into the fourth commandment. But, you know, back in the Middle Ages, the church and state were more aligned, as we've talked about before. And so it makes sense that, you know, a lot of the true holidays of the church year lined up that the state was supportive of having observances in the church in those times, and and so it was easier for Christians. But I think in our present culture, we have to look more to the early church, where they got up early in the day, even for Sunday worship, because the state wasn't friendly to the church. It was not a Christian state in any way, shape, or form. And so it became the priority, and once again, rightly frames our understanding of, of that work that God does in us that enables us to do the rest of our work. And so then I found myself thinking about Again, maybe the connection more to explore in the fourth commandment of how we see the push in our day to have churches have worship services that are more in connection with secular observances and yet not the push to have these holy days observed. And I think that that's an interesting thing too that maybe serves that capital M, me again, or at least as far as our life in this world is concerned and the things that we tend to get more wrapped up in. But I think that'll be a connection for us. But before we get to there, I do want to get a little more here on the third commandment. You've talked about in setting up the commandments last week, how each commandment has the commission, omission side to it. Go ahead and give that for us here in terms of this third commandment before we bridge that into the fourth commandment.
1: Sure. The meaning begins, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise preaching and his word. So there's sort of the sin of commission. What act do we commit that is sinful against God's holy will? It's when we despise the preaching and his word. What's interesting about that is that Luther puts preaching before the word of God, not as if it's superior to the word of God, but perhaps as a reminder to the reader that part of having the Word of God is to hear it and to be taught it and be sort of the passive recipient of it rather than the theological judge and jury of interpretation over what I'm reading. And so when we hear we should not despise preaching, it reminds us I might have God's Word very handy with me during the week, but if I don't go to the preaching. I'm going to be very tempted to interpret that word of God in whatever way most benefits what I want it to say to me. Uh, You always hear people say things like, well, what I get out of this passage or "What what it's saying to me is, well, all that means is I really want it to say this, and therefore look how I've made it turn into saying that for me. But when the preaching comes, The preaching is something that I don't get to, as a hearer, I don't get to determine what's going to be said, and I have to receive passively the objective law and gospel, even if I don't like or enjoy how it has to be applied to me. If the law has to point out to me I'm a sinner and I don't want to hear that, I'm definitely not going to find in reading the Bible, I'm not going to find verses that I don't enjoy hearing having applied to me the way I don't want them to apply to me. And so I have to hear that if it's actually going to benefit me in the way that God intends it to benefit me. In Romans, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. So that preaching is absolutely vital, lest we become sort of lords over the scriptures by saying, as long as I read it during my daily life, then I can determine what it is actually trying to say to me. That's a very dangerous game to play because as sinners, as those who are tempted to always idolize Capital M Me, we're going to make our reading of it interpreted in a way that actually supports Capital M Me rather than condemning and calling to repentance Capital M Me. So that preaching is an important part of that first phrase, that sin of commission. Do not despise or do not stay away from the preaching, which might almost sound like a sin of omission. You're staying away from it, but you are actively resisting God's call to come hear the preaching. Now, what about the sin of omission? But hold it sacred and gladly hear and learn it hold it sacred right the word of god is not merely man's word about god but it's the word from god and indeed it is the word that is god's and and even the word that is intimately connected with and is the authoritative word of about and from the word made flesh himself and so because it is sacred this also should be a reminder to preachers don't waste your time in the sermon talking about story after story after story and then somehow tie in some little teeny amount of the Word of God. Uh, Your hearers are there to hear God's Word. They're not there to hear you give some 15-minute illustration that nicely wraps into three minutes on God's Word, but rather give them what they came for, give them what God wants for them, which is His Word. And so we are to hold it sacred, gladly hear and learn it, understand this is the Holy Word of God, If God visibly appeared today, and I'd ask all of your listeners to think about this image, if God visibly appeared right before you today and started speaking to you, you would do everything you could to take down every word that he spoke. You would etch those words into your arms if needed in order to retain what he said. But the scriptures have been given to you and the preaching has been given to you so that you don't need to scar your arms. Uh, You have God's word. And think how often in the scriptures we hear Christ himself, John chapter 8, remain in my word and you will be my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Uh, Last week we mentioned uh, Psalm 1, blessed is the man whose delight is in the law of the Lord. There's Psalm 118, thy word is a lamp unto my feet. Hebrews 4, the word is living and active. I mean, you could go on and on and on with the scripture's description about itself and about the preaching of the word and the power of that preaching. And so that sin of Omission there at the end of the third commandment is one that says, uh, you, You better make sure that you are holding the sacred. That is the righteous thing to do, is to gladly come and be a student, gladly come and sit at the feet of Jesus, and he will proclaim to you that divine word.
0: Absolutely. And even connects in well with what sets up the commandments itself, right? You know, talk about these when you're walking on the way, put them on the doorposts of your house, just, you know, etch them all over the place, right? Have this word committed to your hearts and especially the third commandment focuses us right in on that uh, we're going to take a break here on the other side of the break we'll catch the hinge between the third commandment and the fourth commandment or really the two tables of the commandments as we move into the fourth commandment i should say and so we'll pick that up on the other side of the break you're listening to concord matters on kfuo
1: Hi, I'm Pastor Ted Lesh of Chapel of the Cross Lutheran in North St. Louis County. Your brothers and sisters at Chapel of the Cross invite you to join us where Jesus meets us in his word, where law and gospel are proclaimed, where forgiveness is announced and received. We encourage one another in this true faith and shared life. Join Chapel of the Cross for worship Sundays at 4 p.m. right here on KFUO Radio.
0: Welcome back to Concord Matters as we continue talking with our catechist for this series, Pastor Mark Bestel. As we now move into the fourth commandment, that's what we generally call the beginning of the second table of the Ten Commandments. And moving forward from the third commandment then, which would be the end of the first table, Pastor Bestel, go ahead and talk about what are we talking about here when we're talking about these two tables of the commandments and what's our hinge between these here then?
1: Sure. The two tables of the commandments are always set out very nicely for us, both theologically and even artistically. The first table always includes commandments one, two, and three. And that table is basically the commandments regarding an individual's relationship or obedience to God and the commandments about his relationship with God. So the first, second, third commandment, obviously that has to do with the individual's relationship to God. Then you get to the second table, and most often in artwork, that is really seen as Commandments 4 through 10. And being that there were two stone tablets, my guess is that Commandment 4 was probably included on that second table. And so you see in that artwork where you've got Commandments 4 through 10, which basically are about sins against my neighbor, Jesus sort of summarizes these two, right, when he says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you sort of see those two tables. And that hinge then that comes in is that hinge of the fourth commandment, I think, of the fact that the fourth commandment sort of has a foot in both tables. We'll get to that in just a minute. This is also an opportunity first, though, to mention the idea of the kingdom of the left and the kingdom of the right though it's not specifically the same thing, you do get a sense that there's a difference between how you have your thought process toward the commandments toward God and the commandments toward neighbor. And the king of the left, kingdom of the right is sort of a similar reality in the idea of saying God is king and sovereign and Lord over the entire creation. And yet how he handles his care for the church, law and gospel in the church is slightly different than how he handles his care for the world out there, which is basically the use of the holy law and then daily provision for the world out there. So it's interesting in both of these images, they're not apples to apples, but in both of them, you see sort of this dichotomy uh, of an understanding that there's a distinction between how God cares for the world, how God cares for the church. And in the same way, there's sort of this distinction of the sinners or in the case of those who love the commandments, the Christian's view of how he has a relationship with God versus his relationship with his neighbor. And so the fourth commandment really well serves as a hinge in many ways for both of those, that the fourth commandment reminds us that, yes, this is about a commandment about my neighbor, and yet this commandment is all about a neighbor who's been given authority over me. And so as that neighbor has authority over me, that authority comes from God and that God who rules both kingdoms or, or realms. I think off the air one time you mentioned to me that you really like that word, the two realms rather than the two kingdoms. And that's a great description because he's king over both realms. And yet how does he care for both? He cares for both with authority and that authority in the church is a little bit different than the authority in the world. And in the same way with the fourth commandment, God gives divine authority to one who is over me, and yet this person is my neighbor. And so I think the fourth commandment, just to think of it that way, as sort of that go between, between the two tables, is a really helpful way for people to see that this commandment is much more than simply saying, obey those who are in authority over you. But rather, how should you revere them and cherish them? As Luther even gets into in the meaning, as you'll read for us here in a second, he even gets into this idea that it's not just about obedience, but it's about understanding that these people are gifts to us from God. Their authority and their responsibility toward us is a gift from God, whether it's in the kingdom of the right, the church, or in the kingdom of the left, the world.
0: Yeah, I do think it's important to accent, and we generally do do this teaching that it is an authority from God. And that is the reason, as you mentioned, I've mentioned that to you off the air, but if we have any regular listeners, they know I've brought this up on the air several times in the past of how I do prefer that language of two realms rather than two kingdoms, because I think it accents, one, I think it's more faithful to the German of Luther's writings, but two, I think it accents for us that it is one kingdom and it's God's kingdom, and he rules in two realms the church and the world, as you might say, or the civil realm. And so yeah, I do think that that helps us then understand that this is from God and and it is all connected together. And our life doesn't feel so disjointed then as if we are living in two different kingdoms. It's all God's kingdom. So anyway, as we jump into that, then in the fourth commandment and receive this teaching, let me go ahead and begin with our commandment and explanation. So honor your father and your mother is the fourth commandment. And Martin Luther explains in his catechism explanation of what does this mean? He says, we should fear and love God so that we do not despise parents and other authorities, but honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. Go ahead and talk about this hinge commandment then there, Pastor Bestel.
1: This hinge commandment is so important that it's one of the longest sections of the whole Book of Concord. Uh, I believe in the large catechism, if I counted correctly, Luther spends about 75 paragraphs talking about the fourth commandment, and that's a lot of content, and it's because this commandment really helps us see the connection between what people often refer to as their spiritual life and their earthly life, right? Sometimes we're tempted to think that the things of God are sort of closed off to Sunday mornings, right? We just got done talking about the third commandment, that the things of God are sort of private. They're spiritual. They're sort of ethereal. They're in my head. And they really don't have to do with daily life out there. And yet this commandment reminds us that the authority that comes from God and the responsibility for our well-being, that responsibility that is then a responsibility to God, all of that happens very tangibly, It's very real life and blood stuff. And because of that, then, we should really study this fourth commandment carefully and understand how this connection between authority over someone, but also responsibility to God, how that works. And so we should see very quickly in the commandment itself that God places father and mother as the highest earthly authority. And that's a really important point to make because we live in a society increasingly that has already gutted the family. It is trying to gut the life of the church, and it's trying to place all authority in the government or in a sort of mob rule or just majority opinion. And God places the authority primarily in the family, primarily in the offices of father and mother, and he specifically uses the words father and mother to show that it's not just some generic father or one office that we're just going to call father and all authority just sort of basically gets lumped into that, but that there is also the office of motherhood. And so both parents being involved in this shows that God has a very specific definition of how he wants authority to play out in daily life. Because that authority ultimately is not only an authority to do whatever you want, but it's an authority that is accountable to God for those that you've been granted authority over. And so if father and mother have that authority, then they also have that accountability to God. So the primary wielder of all of this authority is the household father. He's the primary responsibility for all of the household members. He has primary responsibility over them, not only within the household, but then also as they conduct themselves in society, as they're cared for in the church. It's his primary responsibility to make sure that they are being raised up rightly, to be a good citizen of society, to be faithful in the church. These responsibilities fall to the father of the household and to the mother who is his helper suitable unto him, right? And so the very first thing in the meaning is that we are to honor them, right? So certainly we should fear and love God so that we do not despise parents and then notice and other authorities. And we'll get to in a couple of minutes how the other authorities derive all their authority from the parents. But again, notice that the parents are listed first. So that's the sin of commission is, is despising them. But then also we should honor them, serve and obey them, love and cherish them. And I think there's a very specific reason that the order is as the order is. But the very first thing we ought to do is we ought honor them. Despite their imperfections, they are nevertheless those chosen by God for this purpose, and therefore we ought to honor them. Interesting wood carving or wood cut that's used as the depiction of the fourth commandment in the reader's edition of the Book of Concord that CPH has put out the woodcut or the wood carving that's used is the uh, image of ham dishonoring his father noah that's in genesis 9 and if you remember what that was all about is that noah after the flood had basically gotten himself drunk and he had in some ways dishonored himself by it uh, ham disgraces his father by making his drunken nakedness known to his brothers And so what a great depiction that Noah did not earn the honor. He himself was a sinner and he had gotten himself caught up in the sin of drunkenness. And yet Ham is chastised by this fourth commandment as dishonoring one who perhaps didn't deserve the honor by his conduct and yet deserved it by his office. And so this is a great reminder that we don't need perfect parents in order to keep this commandment or in order to have a responsibility to keep this commandment. Children should not be looking for reasons to say, I don't have to honor my parent. If you look hard enough, it won't take long, and you'll see your parents are imperfect. And yet these are the parents that God gave authority over you. They're parents that, imperfect though they may be, they are part of God's perfect plan. And as part of his perfect plan, then it is the greatest honor that you can show anyone on earth to see that, hey, you are here as my mother, as my father. You are here because God put you here as my mother and father, and I'm here as your son or daughter because God made me your son or daughter, that you might be my mother or father because he had that specific of detail and plan oriented into his greater daily bread provisions for us and his temporal care for us, even in this kingdom of the left and not just in the kingdom of the right. And so the greatest good work that any child can do is to honor his parents. And as we learn to honor them, that leads to serving and obeying them as if we were serving and obeying God himself. And as such, uh, service and obedience yields a beneficial life together because if parents are doing their job correctly, they're not telling us to honor and serve them just to do whatever they arbitrarily want us to do, but rather they're trying to teach us what is beneficial for the whole household, right? You, You make your bed, you do the dishes, you do the daily chores because that helps the whole household. And as that yields a beneficial life together, Then we learn to see our parents' wisdom, their God-given gifts, and thus we learn to love and cherish them. So it starts with honoring them. Honor them first, just because God says so, even if they don't seem to be fulfilling their office as nobly as you think they could or should be doing. Honor them. Then that leads to actually living that out in daily life by serving and obeying that. And that, in that beneficial life together leads to a life of loving and cherishing them and they in turn loving and cherishing you as that gift of a son or daughter that God has given them. So this is the greatest good work any child can do is to honor their parents and Luther pours a lot of ink out on this very concept of saying you don't need to spend your whole life looking for a bunch of good works. Just go out there and love your parents and that will be sufficient. Imagine how beautiful the society would be if children honored and obeyed parents, and if parents wielded authority according to God's will. Imagine, for example, uh, you know, I'm in Elgin, I'm about 40 miles from Chicago. Imagine what the city of Chicago would be like if fathers did their job and stayed in one family rather than just leaving uh, leaving a woman behind with an unborn child to try and figure out how to care for and raise this unborn child. Uh, Imagine what Chicago would be like if you had secure home life, if fathers did their job, if children honored their parents and the family unit remained intact. Sadly, children don't obey their parents. Parents, even more sadly, do not obey God's will. And then both generations suffer because of that. Luther even says in his large catechism, as the foolish parents have lived, so live their children after them, which sort of reminds us of what we call the close of the commandments, but really it's an explanation of the first commandment in the scriptures when it talks about the idea that children will pay the price for the sins of the fathers to the third and fourth generation. And you can almost envision that slide away from the things of God when one generation doesn't pass it down to the next generation And that second generation says, well, you know, for example, I know my parents go to church all the time, but they didn't really teach me why to go to church, so I'll just go to church every so often. And then the third generation says of the second generation, well, they go to church every so often, but I'm just going to go on Christmas and Easter. And then the fourth generation says of the third generation, you know, why even bother going Christmas and Easter if it's just a tradition? I've got other traditions that I can build into it. And you go down the generations far enough, and pretty soon one of the generations says, I don't even know who Christ is. I don't. I know nothing about this Christian faith. I'm basically an atheist. And so it's a sad ripple effect when parents don't uphold their end of their, not only their authority in God's sight, but their responsibility and accountability to God for the sake of these children. So all authority must accord with God's will. Luther says, quote, nothing should be valued higher than the will and word of parents. And here's an important phrase. As long as that, too, is subordinated to the preceding commandments. Boy, that is key. And here's where you get this hinge again, that this is intimately tied to God's will, as we see in the first three commandments. And so I am never to honor an authority that seeks to subvert commandments one through three. We sort of hinted at this last week in talking about the first commandment when it came to our response to covid I think more could be said about that just in saying, well, wait a second here. Did we honor the fourth commandment, but in a way that was not subordinate to the preceding commandments that we said, forget the Sabbath day for a while or forget calling upon God's name at the altar and the uh, pulpit and the font for a while because fourth commandment. Uh, Well, Luther very specifically says in the large catechism, the fourth commandment can never supersede the first three commandments. And so notice how all of the authority comes from God to the parents because the family is the central unit of all creation, right? The family unit was made first. And then as an extension of the parents, it goes out to the earthly authorities, other earthly authorities. Parents should not be answering to teachers and school administrators as what is happening now in our society, but just the opposite. Children do not belong to the state. They do not belong to the school system. It is ungodly for our school systems to be teaching our children things or subjecting them to things without parents knowing about it or consenting to it. And yet you see how that has undercut the authority of the home life, the authority of parents. Children are not to be taught the things of God primarily in Sunday school, and yet you see how we've sadly sort of depended upon Sunday school to do all of the teaching in one hour that parents are supposed to be doing for 24-7, 365 in the home. So as you quoted that Deuteronomy passage earlier about always having these things set before your eyes, that's set of the parents to the children, and therefore parents have to be doing that job. In terms of raising their children in the faith, they can't just depend upon Sunday school teachers to do it. Another example, what about parents taking responsibility of disciplining their children temporally so that as they grow up, they don't have to be disciplined by the state? Usually those who are disciplined by the state were probably never terribly well-disciplined at home or appropriately disciplined at home. Uh, I actually had a neighbor years ago, they've now moved away from the neighborhood, but we actually had a neighbor who anytime their kids got out of control, they would dial 911 and the cops were showing up at their house constantly to do the work that the parents were supposed to be doing, uh, which is to discipline the child in the fear of the Lord. Of course, our cops aren't necessarily always doing it in the fear of the Lord. At least they're bringing some temporal discipline, but all discipline is to be done in the, in the fear of the Lord. So, you can see how all of this external authority really derives its power from parental authorities. The small catechism says this very well, as the head of the household should teach it, right? All authority comes from that. And Luther has some great quotes in the large catechism on this reality that all authority derives its authority from the parents. And so we can see that this household unit is honored by God in the fourth commandment. And that's not just true of children who are, for example, under the age of 12. Anyone under the roof of an individual is part of that immediate household as long as they live under that roof. And this is a very important concept when, for example, parents are struggling with teenagers or young adults who are 20, 21, 22, and And young adult is wanting to spread their wings and parents are frustrated with trying to figure out how do we make sure they understand that we want to treat them as an adult and yet at the same time we still have rules of the household. This fourth commandment is so helpful with that. And not just children of parents, but what about when a head of the household brings someone under his roof as a way of caring for that individual, whether it be a, let's say, a mother or a father. That doesn't mean all of a sudden, the father gets to be head of the household. The one who's head of the household and brings his elderly father in to live with him is head of the household over his father, which is an interesting situation. And so anytime someone is under the roof, I think a good summary for this is to say, if you are independent to move out, 19-year-old, 20-year-old, 21-year-old, then you can be the head of your own household. But as long as you depend upon the household that you live in, then you are under the authority of the head of the household. And that head of the household has responsibility to God for you. And so when the head of the household says to the 21-year-old, you are getting up on Sunday morning and going to church and going to Bible study, that's not treating that 21-year-old as a child, but rather it's carrying out that God-given authority that the fourth commandment must still be accountable to commandments one through three.
0: You talked about in there about something that I think is one of the great sins of the last few generations and as you talked about what we commonly call the close of the commandments I think we're reaping the fruits of this of basically parents surrendering up their responsibilities for others to do. I was also thinking there's another side to that too and you talked about the one parents that you knew that always called 911 to discipline their children and that's one of those examples of parents surrendering their responsibilities. But we also live in an age where we see increasingly more, and I've seen this in Department of Child and Family Services sorts of situations and so forth, where the government is stepping in and telling parents what they can and cannot do, namely in terms of discipline, where if you would allow a parent to faithfully discipline their child, that you wouldn't have to do it at the state level. But the state makes that even difficult. And there's a tension there, as I always like to say, you know, the Christian life is one that's lived in tension. And I think this gets us into an important point here then to talk about is that as we recognize that parents are that primary, as you said, and so they need to be faithful. They can't just surrender up their responsibilities, yet they are also under authority. They fall under these other authorities as well. And there's a balance that kind of needs to be struck there. So talk about these authorities that are outside the household then.
1: You're right. There is this balance and this tension because of this reality of the three estates. Uh, We've talked about the two kingdoms, but perhaps more tangibly to daily life, God gives these three estates of family, church, and government or society. And he gives the father figures of each estate authority. And that is authority to support and encourage one another according to God's will not to usurp authority from the other two estates. And this is sort of the problem we've gotten into in our society is sort of, you know, what's the last estate standing? Well, it seems to be government is the one that's undercutting the authority of the church, undercutting the authority of of the parents. You're right. DCFS has to come in. Sometimes it's legitimate. Other times it's overreaching. Uh, Luther, again, has a great quote here. He says, so all whom we call masters are in the place of parents, And must get their power and authority to govern from them. Boy, that's an interesting quote, that parents ultimately are the highest authority in that regard, and yet because of this reality that we do leave under the household and we do go out into society, therefore the government is given by God as part of our daily bread but to carry out his will in limiting crime and limiting evil doing, as Romans 13 says, rewarding the good, punishing the bad. The church is certainly given to care for all members of society who would call upon the name of the Lord and to give them the law and the gospel and to give them Christ. And that includes whether you're in the household or whether you're a servant of the government. If you're a Christian, then the church is there to serve you. And if you're not a Christian, the church is there to call you to repentance. And if you're a governing official, the church is there to call you to repentance if you're not governing according to God's will. And if you're a father or a mother and you're not parenting according to God's will, the church is there to call you to repentance. So you've got this tension, as you use this word, between these three estates, but it's not really a tension of competition as much as they are complementary to one another, And so the church does not always have to listen to the government. The family doesn't always have to listen to the government. The government has no authority, for example, you know, everyone's thinking of the COVID issues here nowadays. The government has no authority to tell a head of the household whether or not his family has to wear a mask in their own home or whether or not he's allowed to invite anyone into his own home. His home is his home. He has the authority. The government has no authority to tell the church how to worship just as the pastor has no authority to tell the governing official what tax rate to set. And so these three estates, when they're used all pointing to God's will and all deriving their individual authorities from God's will, they work in beautiful harmony and symmetry with one another. But when any one of the estates, and sadly in our culture and society, we see many issues in which it's all three estates— do not carry out their God-given functions and do not carry out their God-given authority with an understanding that they are accountable to God, where any one of those three estates do it, but especially as we're seeing in our society where all three estates are having problems with this, then you have chaos and you have a mess because God's will has been forgotten and we're back to each biting and devouring one another because of the capital M me that we are trying to serve as our new lowercase g God.
0: All right, Pastor Bessel, as you said, so much that Luther says here on the fourth commandment, and there is a lot to say on this, uh, whether by Luther or us, but we're kind of right at time here. So go ahead and give us a, a conclusion to this teaching here today, and then we'll push forward next week as we pick up the rest of the commandments.
1: Sure. So for all fathers, no matter which estate they're in, there is to be an honoring and cherishing of them. And yet this commandment gives us an opportunity to speak to the fathers and also remind them of their responsibility. So it's not just a commandment for the children, but it's a commandment for the fathers to remind the fathers they're accountable to God. So a couple of great quotes here to finish off from Luther again from the large catechism. First one, quote, they should seriously and faithfully fulfill their office, not only to support and provide for the bodily necessities of their children, servants, subjects, and so on, but most of all, They should train them to honor and praise God. Therefore, do not think that this matter is left to your pleasure and arbitrary will. How much easier it would be for the children and for the subjects, if you will, to honor the fathers of the estates if they knew that the fathers were carrying out their vocation in fear, love and trust in God above all things. Lastly, Luther says, quote, he has given us children and issued this command. We should train and govern them according to his will. Otherwise, he would have no purpose for a father and mother. Boy, that's a great quote. Uh, You have no purpose for the father and mother anymore if God's will doesn't matter. And that's what we're seeing in our society. But then Luther goes on and he says, therefore, let everyone know that it is his duty on peril of losing the divine favor to bring up his children in the fear and knowledge of God above all things. And then, of course, what does that lead to? It will lead to God blessing us, quote, with well-educated citizens, chaste and domestic wives who would raise godly children. It's a beautiful ending picture of what all of society would look like if we cherished this fourth commandment.
0: Absolutely. And as always, so much more that could be said. We thank you. Pastor Mark Bestel for your faithful catechesis on this. The third commandment and the hinge commandment to the second table, the fourth commandment here today. Great pleasure to have you continue to serve as our catechist for this. We'll pick up next week, continuing to push forward into the commandments and throughout the catechisms here on Concord Matters, talking about the catechized life. And thank you also, dear listener, for stopping by today. And until next time, keep confessing, church.